Welcome, everybody, to the Illusion of Consensus podcast. I'm Professor Jay Bhattacharya. I'm here with Dr. Azadeh Khatibi. She is a, uh, a, a doctor who has distinguished herself during the pandemic by engaging in this, in this lawsuit against uh, a law in California called AB 2098. The law passed by the California legislature last year essentially put doctors at risk of losing their license if they contradicted public health advice. In effect, they basically made it so that the doctors had to look over their shoulder and see the CDC in, in the room with them, uh, with, with their patients. And they had to decide if they uh, had the patient's interest in mind or the CDC's interest in mind. Um, anyways, welcome, Azadeh. Thank you for coming on the Illusion Consensus podcast. Oh, Jay, thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited about this conversation, and I really hope that it will serve the greater good. Um, and uh, And yeah, let's dive in. Okay, so I want to I want to first introduce the, the audience to you. Uh, so you're an ophthalmologist. Have you trained uh, you as, a, as a medical school at UCSF, one of the top medical schools in the country? You uh, went to uh, Irvine for your residency, and you trained in ophthalmology, and you, you practiced ophthalmology for for quite a long time. Um, I, you know, can, can you tell us? Um, you know, because we but this is the theme of the podcast is AB twenty ninety eight. You know, what was practice? What was practice like? Like, what you know, what what do you think think about when you are seeing patients? What do you what's the what's the main goal for for you? What's your philosophy of, of patient management when you you know when you're when you're seeing patients? Well, ultimately, what you want to do is do what's best for the patient and um, and bring your experience, your evaluation of the data, and when you take care of a patient, also ultimately, you want to have an attuned relationship with a patient where you're really seeing where they're coming from and um, what their values, what their goals are, what their past is like and what's motivating them. Um, and then bring your evidence uh, based medicine, your humanity to that relationship and kind of be their counsel, their consultant to help them make the best decision. Um, certainly in ophthalmology, we had to talk about surgery with them and decide whether or not to do a certain surgery um, and talk about them, their goals. For example, you would treat and you treated patients differently, right? So if you had a 25-year-old engineer with an epiretinal membrane who was like super, super OCD about like every single and was spending hours in front of his computer and was really bother, bothered by this membrane over the back of his retina, you might, you know, would recommend that surgery most likely as opposed to someone who's 70 who comes and says, yeah, I have this like little bit of a swiggle, but really doesn't bother me that much. And I, you know, mostly just watch TV. I read a little bit, but not a lot. You're going to treat those patients very differently. So it's about attuned care, attuned to the needs so, so of the, the patient. That in you, front are, of you. You, you care about what the patient wants, obviously what the patient, what their life is about. You're trying to build trust with the patient. Um, are you thinking about what the government wants you to do with the patient? I mean, like, you know, a lot of, there are a lot of major problems in health policy surrounding the, the allocation of, of services. Uh, are you thinking, oh, if I, if I give services to this patient, this is what's going to happen to the, in, in, you know, in, 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 to other patients in public health settings because I'm taking resources away? Is that, I mean, or that doesn't enter your brain, right? I mean, that, no, that I think on a... I think on a one-on-one -on -one patient basis, you really have to think about the patient in front of you and what's best for them. Um, and the uh, certainly when 
the realities of, right, I think the reality of like thinking about things came into effect when, for example, when you were dealing with insurance companies and you were afraid that like one person, someone might not cover a certain injectable medication. For example, we inject medications in the eye and retina. So you might be worried about that. So that was like the major worry that I had. That was more of a business worry and always making sure that the patient wouldn't get stuck with a large bill. But um, ultimately what you wanted to do was the number one thing was treat the patient ethically. And um, I think that's if you stick to that principle and use that as your guide, ethical medicine, that's a really great principle to follow. And, you know, it's like sometimes doctors uh, complain about, you know, guideline based care, right? So, you know, like they're, they're professional organizations will have guidelines that say, you, you know, if, it's like basically like a cookie cutter approach to medicine. If you have a patient that has these characteristics, you must do this. Um, you know, I, I, I personally, my, my view on those guidelines, they're, they're, they're useful things. But in, when, I, when I see a doctor, I don't want the doctor just to be following a cookie cutter approach. I want the doctor to be thinking like if, I, if I, maybe I'm different than what the guidelines suggest. Um, is that, is that, has been that your approach? I mean, I must be, I, I, I know you, so of course it, you know, but uh, what, what was your, what are your thoughts about that? Well, I think guidelines can be helpful, um, knowing that this is a group of people who've come together, they have some level of expertise and have studied, um, in this area and they've put out their ideas, but, and as I, I wrote this in my, when we did the AB lawsuit against the AB 2098, um, uh, law in California, I even wrote that in my own personal life and in my professional life, I have gone against formal consensus and informal consensus many times. And not would, but I also feel like it's because I'm using my centered mind to make these decisions, right? That, that it's, it's, it's worked out beautifully each time. I did it for my own health. I went against um, informal consensus, consensus opinion when I faced death and had to make some decisions about my own health care. Um, I went against the informal con- the ins- consensus um, within my hospital care system. Um, I've done it for my uh, family members. I've gone against formal consensus for my family members, a matter um, for some health issues unrelated to COVID. Um, and it turned out fantastic because we got data and information that we would have not, not otherwise gotten. And understanding that those consensus opinions were ba- people taking into account uh, the evidence as well as fiscal considerations and for me, I was just looking at what's the smartest thing to do for these um, family members slash patients. So I've gone against formal and informal consensus when it just makes and, and sense. For, I mean, honestly, the thing about that that's interesting is I think like the way medicine advances is by doctors who see patients saying, look, this this guideline these experts have come up with isn't working for this patient, right? For, or, or And the, the trust that you have between a patient and a doctor depends on the doctor sometimes saying look the 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 this is what the uh you know th- this is what the expert is saying but it's not right for you uh, or the, pa- the of course the patient plays an enormously important role in that um and it sounds like that's exactly the philosophy you have like you're you're uh, maybe you're a rebel at heart but i think a lot of doctors are left rebels at heart in that sense for when they're advocating for their patients I suppose. But then what happened is when there's, uh, I think a lot of doctors also tend to be followers and they try to want to play it safe, I think. So you may want to be a rebel at heart, but if you're not really manifesting your heart, and I feel like that happened a lot during COVID, um, you tend to play small. So then it's inside of you instead of being out there for patients. I think actually it's a huge ethical issue that um, my friends, some of my close friends, close friends I had before COVID, and I'm friends with them to this day, but they didn't speak out. They didn't 
advocate for their patients. They said one thing to us in social settings, but they did another because they were so afraid. Okay, so uh, on that theme of fear, let, let's jump now. Uh, oh, actually, I, before I, before we jump to 2020, I want to I want to uh, make sure the audience knows that you you actually have another career as well. Right? <laughs> you you were you were you were an actress and a producer. So t- tell 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 the audience about that. Sure. Um, well, just a quick background on myself. So I was born in another country. I was born in Iran. I came here when I was very very um, young, and Iran, as most people know, is a, is a theocratic dictatorship regime. And so I kind of grew up with that theme in my um, upbringing, the idea of the government um, saying one thing and everybody being afraid to speak up and then thinking that it was going to go away, that it's not a big deal. But it ends up being that the Iranian government, the authoritarian regime has been there for more than four decades now. So I had this kind of echo in my head of the past. And so fast forwarding here, I kind of saw what was happening. And I I know that the neuropsychological profile of people in America is very similar to the neuropsychological profile of people all over the all over the world. Right. Iran is not necessarily psychologically. So, you know, the collective consciousness of Iran and, and the different profiles of people is not that different from America. So I I knew that there were going to be elements in American people, personalities in American government and just in general that would have would do very well under you know working for the authoritarian regimes of Iran. So I knew that we're not that special because I grew up with my parents saying, "Oh, we never thought this could happen to Iran. Iran was modernizing, Iran was growing and and we were becoming, you know, we were, we were we thought we were enlightened. Our education system was getting better. Things were getting so much better. We thought that we never thought we could go backward to basically the medieval period in terms of law and control, but I saw that happen. And so I recognize these elements in America, um, what happened during COVID, I think maybe a little bit, because I'm a little bit more sensitive to it. Um, it's also important not to overcall it, but I think I called it pretty appropriately in this setting. Now, um, my uh, so like work, my film, oh, sorry, you, go ahead. My filmmaking. Yeah, I was gonna say there's a, a film that you, that you yeah. helped produce. My filmmaking has been informed by that. On the scene. On the what? Please go ahead. Oh, thank you. So my filmmaking has been informed by that. Um, you know, I started off uh, deciding if I was going to be an actress or a doctor, and it was a really, really hard decision. I was in college. I was at UCLA, Regent Scholar, doing really well. Um, I was a molecular biology major, and that's another thing. I think a lot of doctors are not very strong in molecular biology. Um, and so what happened during COVID um, is they kind of didn't think about that aspect of it in terms of analysis of the vaccines, but that's a whole nother issue we can talk about. Um, the um, I had to decide, okay, am I going to be a doctor or an actress? And ultimately I said, very, very idealistic back then. I'm still so very ethically minded. I said the best thing for me to do and makes most sense because I wanted to go to work every day and have a guarantee that I could help people. And to be an actress, there's no guarantee that you could go to work every day and help people. Um, At least that's how I saw it back then. And so I decided, okay, if I go become a doctor, I can go to work every day, help somebody, guaranteed. I can combine my love of people and my love of biology, um, and I can have a pretty secure future. But your background as an act, actress and a film producer, actually, I think, I mean, I mean, I've been watching your advocacy during the pandemic. I think that it actually helped. I mean, it, it helped uh, in your public communication. 
Uh, it helped with uh, with, but and it's particularly like the kinds of things. I, it sounds like you worked on as an, as a producer before the pandemic were were, were human rights act related, absolutely. Right? But, Absolutely. Um, I mean, so I kind of thought it was going to be on the back burner, the acting thing, but even throughout it, the desired was was still there. So even in medical training, I was still taking courses, doing stuff, but I realized I wanted to work on projects I really believe in, in the creative realm. And so I kind of slowed down during residency and fellowship. And then I hit it hard when I uh, got into uh, back to LA and I got involved in a film called Window Horses with Sandra Oh. And um, uh, that was... Sh- shortlisted for Academy Award nomination for Best Animated Feature in 2018. That was one of 27 films that was shortlisted in that category. And I also helped produce um, that film. And I played two voices. I was doing voiceover, two characters in that film. And that was about creating intercultural, intergenerational bonds. It was about Iran. It was about love. It was about coming together, uh, processing the past wounds. And then um, as I progressed in my filmmaking, I... uh, uh, we started a production company called Genius at Large. And so our projects are really uh, looking at more of a human uh, humanity, human rights uh, focus uh, at this point. And so our film, Sinjar, was a co-production with Spain and it looked at the Yazidi genocide of 2014. So ISIS came into Iraq and um, they invaded the city of the area of Sinjar and they killed the uh, adults. Um, uh, the adult males and the older boys, and they um, enslaved the women and children, and they stole them, and they sold them. So ISIS is very organized. They have actual um, slave markets. And so these people, thousands, were, were taken into these slave markets. And so our film explores that, and it uses actual um, members of uh, the Yazidi population, which is a Kurdish population, in Iraq, who actually were part of the genocide. So one of our main actresses is was a girl who was sold into sex slavery and kidnapped in, uh, in, in, when she was eight. And uh, she was in our film. She played, did a fantastic job. And so our, our, our film looks at the interconnected lives of a, of a, a girl who becomes a soldier for the Kurdish, uh, the, the Kurdish army, a woman who's a sex slave in Syria. Um, and then uh a mother whose son joins ISIS. And so, you know, I wanted to explore, we wanted to explore in a project, the, the duality and the, the sides of, you know, looking at things from different perspectives as well. I think that's very important for us to learn as a skill. And so these are projects that I really believe in, kind of looking at and, and, and revealing human rights atrocities. And uh, that certainly informed some of my COVID work as well. I think my life in Iran, the the creative work I've done, my medical training, my public health training, because I also got a public health degree from UC Berkeley. And um, at some point I was like, why aren't we addressing, you know, following the principles that I learned in public health training during COVID? This doesn't make sense, right? All of this stuff has informed my advocacy now um, for COVID. Okay. So, so 2020 happens. We're now, now you know, we, 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 we moved to March 2020. There's this new virus and, you know, the, the world is scared. I mean, that, and, and in fact, not just the world, large numbers of doctors are scared. P- public health officials are scared. Um, you really became active in in sort of the the, the, the fight on COVID publicly anyways. Uh, so a little bit later. So I, I'm really curious what you what you were thinking and feeling and, 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 and going through in 2020 that, that led to your public advocacy. Well, uh 
I was thinking and feeling. So I uh, was in the beginning of the, was just trying to figure out what's going on. It was very overwhelming. And in the beginning, I thought, oh, okay, well, there's this virus. We don't know what's going on with it. Let's be, you know, and, and I, I practice mindfulness and I teach it. So one of the things is to always, you know, to be open. And I tend to have a more open personality anyway. So I was just like, what's going on? Except what I was hearing and the noise of what I was hearing in the mainstream media was very fearful and it was very reactive. And I was... uh noticing that there were now doctors who were speaking out. I remember seeing something about Scott Jensen, Dr. Scott Jensen in the beginning, and he was talking about how he was being attacked. And I was like, this is strange. This is weird. Um, but Scott I was Jensen, still- He's a Minnesota senator uh, and, uh, and a physician who almost lost his license for, yeah. I mean, just yeah. basically, you know, uh, uh, thinking like a doctor during the pandemic. Yeah. And, and so I was like, this is strange. Why are doctors getting attacked? And this was pretty early on. And then I was looking at data for the um, potential infection and fatality rates. And I was like, this is not what's driving the, what I'm hearing on the news media. Now, I also um, was pretty insulated at that time, um, going through my own health journey. And uh, also, I had my kids at home. So it's just kind of balancing everything. And it was just so reactive. The outside world was so reactive in the media and even on my, my social media feed. And I wasn't on Twitter. And that's one thing I really, really regret because if I had been on Twitter, maybe I would have seen um, a bigger picture of not think that I'm the only one or so, so isolated and the only one who's thinking this way or one of the very few who's thinking this way. So I didn't, I thought I was so alone in my, I didn't really have a community of people who thought like me. And I think that isolation kind of it, it and, and I would try I was on these physician Facebook groups and I would try to have conversations with people about like is it as bad or what let's talk about the ethics etc of lockdowns or the downstream consequences of lockdowns and and but there was I was just completely met with reactivity and I was thinking to myself this is crazy these people are doctors now I've actually become members of other Facebook groups where people are more open more thoughtful um, but it really also like shows you like the community you're in I you can really either make you feel supported or isolated depending on what they're at, how they act. And the, the Facebook communities I, w- I was in and physicians were just so reactive. And I think that's a testament to like how emotionally immature most people are. Um, and I mean, and part, so, of it, part of it though, of course, was uh, it wasn't just organic. Like a lot of the, a lot of what was happening on social media and even in the media at the time was directed by government agencies. Like, you know, we've learned in this case, this Missouri versus Biden case, that the government had an enormously important role in what got allowed to be discussed on social media. Uh, You know, during the pandemic, during later in the pandemic, when there were vaccine injured people popping up, um, a lot of them went to Facebook to try to find each other and and give each other support. And the government shut those groups, they told the social media companies to shut those groups down. Um, So terrible, isn't it? And, and, you know, a lot of the. And, and. I remember that I was, um, I I finally was like, okay, I'm going to start speaking out because it's just too much. And so I had to, I remember chilling, and this is like in 2020, I remember chilling my speech because I had heard the head of, I don't remember what it was, the head of Facebook or the head of one of these social media companies say, we follow WHO and CDC. This is how we decide, you know, who we uh, 
get rid of, you know, who we deplatform or don't platform. And I was like, wait a minute, I am disagreeing now with what's coming out. So they're going to deplatform me. So it was out in the open. So to me, I was just like, oh, so now I have to, so that I started kind of speaking in code on my Instagram stories. That's kind of in, in 2020, I just started. And then I saw something in the British Medical Journal with editorials that were like, kind of questioning things and how the lockdowns and how things were being done. So I started seeing, oh, I'm not the only one. When the British Medical Journal started printing stuff, it made me feel less alone. And so I started, I remember reading something from the British Medical Journal on my Instagram stories. And another doctor was like, you know, you're spreading misinformation. I was like, okay, I'm living in the upside down. I have to, I started speaking in code, but I started speaking out more. And then I saw this, um, in, in New England Journal of Medicine, I saw this article about an ethical framework for vaccine mandates. And this was summer of 2020. So this is quite still pretty early on. But I read that article. And given what I had been seeing about, you know, people's reactivity, about um, a lack of real clear discussion about um, infection fatality rates and, and, and morbidities and who's really vulnerable, because... It, it just it, the, the conversation was just so fragmented and reactive. I I knew that the the downstream consequences of 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 what was going to happen when we had a vaccine was going to be uh, fragmented and reactive as well. So I saw this article and um, I didn't like what it said and what it was hinting at or what it was setting up. Um, and I especially because of what I knew about the infection fatality rate. So I my my colleague and I wrote a letter to New England Journal, you know, discussing other things that we thought would be appropriate. And New England Journal didn't, didn't publish it. And I went to back and see, how, did anybody else, did they publish anything disagreeing with this article? And they hadn't published any letters that disagreed with the article. And so I, 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 I think, I think I remember that article. It was, it was basically advocating for vaccine mandates, saying, setting the framework for vaccine mandates, even before the vaccine was rolled out. I remember yeah, and I mean, what the federal government, and, and I recognize that because this is a, uh, I'd, I'd done some work, uh, literature reviews on mandates by that point. And I recognize that these were authors that were very um, prominent in the um, pro-vaccine mandate uh, ethical literature, right? There's different groups and they kind of discuss this stuff in the ethical literature. And so I recognize these authors. And so, but now what I've seen is what the federal government did anyway, went kind of way beyond extreme of what they were even suggesting. So what's happened is even beyond what uh, the, the pro-mandate ethicists um, had been right. uh, suggesting, which is it's kind of crazy when you think about it. Um, so, you know, I, so I yeah. had started speaking out mostly in code um, and I uh, saw your work. I was so inspired by it. But I thought to myself, I was like, oh, Jay Bhattacharya can speak out because he has the full force of the university behind him. He's safe. He's safer than I would be. That was the thinking in my mind, right? And I think that's true to a certain extent. I think, you know, institutional, uh, the name of an institution can kind of boo you up. It opens doors for you and it can also boo you up. But then when I went and talked to you later, a few years later, and actually got the pleasure and the honor of meeting you. And you told me what had happened to you at your institution, you know, um, that was pretty. Well, it is, I mean, to be, to be fair, fair to you, uh, today, it is actually much more difficult, I think, for doctors, uh, to speak up, uh, because, you know, if you have, if you have a medical license, you worry about that, right? Your entire livelihood. I do have tenure protection, which held during the pandemic. 
Um, um, but it was, you know, the, the social pressure to be quiet, to censor yourself that you faced. I faced it too. A lot of people in my position faced it. A lot of people when I went, because, because I was so public, um, people would write to me telling me, you know, thank you for speaking up, but I, I can't do it because I, you know, I've got a family to feed or, or it was just, you know, just, it's, it's the, the, essentially like you are ostracized, almost excommunicated. If you have, oh, I think the, uh, the infection fatality rate is 0. 0.2 or 0. 0.3 or 0. 0.4. And all of a sudden you've like said something horribly bad. Um, you know, yeah, exactly. And, or if you're, or, you know, if you know, if you are, uh, you know, immunity after COVID recovery, they, you're not allowed to, not allowed to recognize that. I mean, that's, it's just a, a very odd thing where like as a doctor or a scientist, you're looking at the data and you, you have one thought. And, but you, if you say it's all in one direction, if you are counter narrative, you're going to get you're going to get canceled. Yeah, and then you know you you get canceled or you lose your job, and doctors are no longer independent. The vast majority of them, right? Seventy five percent of doctors work for someone else. That's a problem too. That's a big problem because then the institution that is dependent on uh, the institution being, you know, health maintenance organization, uh, or, or an academic institution or whatever, they, they actually depend on the federal government to some extent, right? Funding, et cetera. So they, and, and then, uh, CMS dollars. So they have to kind of have this, um, framework. And if the doctor wants to create a new framework or kind of rock the foundation of how they're going, they will just fire the person. Well, so that, and like the vaccine is a fantastic, the vaccine mandates are a fantastic example of this, right? So the Biden administration uses CMS. CMS is the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services that administers the Medicare program, which covers everyone over 65 in the United States, and a lot of disabled folks in the United States, and then also Medicaid, which is the, the program for the poor. Um, basically, the CMS says, this is the Biden administration says through CMS that uh, the, the, the hospitals won't receive payments unless the doctors are all vaccinated, vaccinated in the hospitals. And so now the hospitals are now become the, the, the arms of CMS, of the Biden administration. Like they, they, they pressure doctors and nurses and everybody else that, okay, you have to choose. Either, either you abide by this mandate or you are fired. Or you lose your livelihood. Um, I mean, that, essentially, that's that that kind of pressure. Uh, you know, I've seen people try to argue that that's not actually pressure; that somehow that's like uh, not 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 coercion. Uh, and, and of course, it didn't make sense. The vaccine doesn't stop you from getting COVID, so it doesn't protect others really very much against getting against getting COVID. So it doesn't stop the spread of the disease. So it's not like I have to get vaccinated to protect others. This is just pure coercion on on me to get vaccinated by the Biden administration via the arms of the employee, the, who you work for, like in, in, in this case, hospitals uh, or, or, uh, or healthcare systems. Using money to get people to do something to their bodies, in my view, is a huge ethical problem. And then using, you know, money to, to, to manipulate doctors to say one thing or do one thing or to, it is, it's, it's even, it's, it's, it's so dangerous. Like that's just—it yeah, seems like so obvious. <laughs> <sighs> I mean, I, yeah. I mean, I think we had we had ethical standards that I thought we uh, we all agreed to before the pandemic, but, and it, it was shocked me to learn that so many of my colleagues and fellow doctors disagreed with those ethical standards as soon as as soon as like it became a difficult situation uh, so, with the pandemic. So one of the things. So then, what happened is as I started speaking out more and more, like in. Uh, 
I would say like fall 2020 or summer, summer, fall 2020 in my like Instagram stories. Um, uh, and then I started seeing what was happening with the, um, the vaccine mandates that were coming down in the pipeline for the UC uh, system. I got very concerned about that. I um, start, started looking at the data from the vaccine itself. I became very concerned about that. I listened. I remember listening to almost a, a large portion of the vaccine advisory committee for Pfizer, and I was sitting there. It's like an eight-hour eight-hour meeting. And I was sitting there, sitting there, like, why are the advisory committee members asking like basic questions? I think they need to be asking. Um, and then, you know, about the safety of the vaccine and potential molecular mechanisms that I was seeing that could potentially cause problems down the line in terms of autoimmune disease or um, a, a decreased immune system. And so I was just like, we need to be asking these questions. I saw very few people, I saw very few of those questions being asked, just looking at the molecular mechanisms of the vaccine. And then I just, uh, I, I saw that there were members on the committee, the advisory committee, who had concerns, and I think there were four who voted against uh, approval of the vaccine. But the, listening to the dynamics of the meeting was really concerning to me too. And I think this is also like the psychological dynamics of the meeting when they were discussing things and how someone, one, one member was like kind of very, I would say overpowering of conversation. You know, it, it made me take pause and, and, and I've seen that kind of reflected over and over again and this is how like the illusion of consensus gets created too when when someone is overpowering or overbearing and then other people become small and afraid to speak up um i think this is a great opportunity for us to reflect on that uh i saw that when i uh talked in front of the congressional subcommittee as well um oh, no, hold, hold on to that story we're oh gonna, yeah we're, sure we're gonna sure, get sure. to that <laughs> okay yeah because we we still haven't got to ab 2098 so in fact sure. that, let's now it's a fantastic time to get to ab 2098 um uh, so, so AB twenty ninety eight, uh, like we like like I said at the beginning of the podcast, was this law passed by the California Legislature uh, sometime in in fall of twenty twenty two. I actually wrote a, a piece for Barry Weiss's uh, Free Press, uh, arguing that in, in summer of twenty twenty two, because I knew I'd heard that this was in 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 you know sort of process, arguing that there was a, a it was a terrible violation of the autonomy of doctors and the ability mm -hmm. for doctors to take care of their patients. Like essentially you put the CDC in the same room with each doctor and they were looking over their shoulder, wondering who they should care for this, who they should like, you know, think about the CDC or the patient. Um, uh, and I was stunned when I saw AB 2098 passed. I, and I, 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 I'm curious, when did you first hear about AB 2098? What was your first, first set of reactions so I um, approximately so throughout 2021, I kind of said I want to be more I, I want to be more fearless. I want to be speaking out more. And I had done a lot of my internal uh, internal work to kind of get to that point of alignment. And in early 2022, I'd started speaking out, especially um, because I saw Los Angeles, where I live, like becoming like really upside down in terms of the COVID vaccine passports and not allowing people who were unvaccinated to eat indoors uh, and uh, keeping kids out of school and, consider and more lockdowns, et cetera. And, and so I um, started speaking out more. I saw this slew. By that time, I'd gotten a little bit plugged in more on social media to know what was going on in terms of laws that were coming down the pipeline in terms of California, because what was happening in California was terrible. Um, Gavin Newsom had mandated that all children have to get vaccinated for COVID in order to go to school. Um, they had really had prolonged lockdowns, things that I knew 
from my public health studies were like very detrimental long term um, for the health of society, um, economically, in terms of the social fabric, et cetera. So I was like, okay, enough is enough. I got to really start speaking out because we're going down a path of potentially a path of no return. And so I remember going to my first rally. I was so nervous, right? And so I went to my first rally and I see one of my friends there and I'm like, he's a doctor. I was like, wait a minute, you believe what I believe? He's like, for sure. It was so wonderful to see him, right? And that buoys you up. And so that's why I went back to like the idea of community and having people who uplift you. And so I was there, I prepared some words, I gave a speech, it felt great. So then I go to another rally. This time I wear my white coat and I was so nervous about wearing my white coat. Um, but I wanted to at least, at least visually have something that like people can see that, oh, there's doctors who believe something different than what the mainstream, you know, consensus is saying. And so people were like looking at me and like surprised and, and it just felt like, oh, I'm on the right path. I felt very aligned. It was not from an ego thing. It was an alignment thing. Um, because my ego was actually telling me to stay small and stay safe. I remember, uh, like, in I gave a talk in Southern California uh, in uh, it was like late 2020, yeah, late 2022, and uh, AB 2098, I guess, had just passed, and you were you were in attendance, and I, and you came up to me afterwards. I think it's the first time we met, um, and I was I was uh, you asked me for my advice about uh, you were considering whether to to join a lawsuit in and advocate against AB 2098, a, a law that had just been passed by the state of California a law that had been endorsed by the California Medical Association with leaders of the California Medical Association. And, um, and you asked my, asked my advice about whether, whether it was, was wise to speak up or what, what to do. And it was, I, I, I was really touched actually. I thought, and I was also really impressed uh, how thoughtful you were, how mindful you were about the, about the first that in your clear mindedness about what, how bad this law was for doctors and patients. And that was, that was clear to me. That was the, the base of your, uh, decision to, to to advocate against it, and then then second, just to think about you you know if anyone that joins this kind of fight against authority has to count the cost, has to understand what what they're up against, and you you do that in a very mindful way. I was I was quite impressed. Thanks. I uh, I was scared um, up until that point. I'd been trying to use my representatives' offices. I'd set up meetings with my representatives to try to fight the law and other laws that I saw were um, really bad. Um, in the post-COVID world that California was trying to pass, and I wasn't getting anywhere. Um, and so when it finally passed, and I by that point, I was really sad for myself and the state of the world, and I said, I have to act. And by that, I got on Twitter. My friend who had seen at that rally was like, you got to get on Twitter. That's where it's at. I was like, okay. So then I started tweeting. And then people were happy to hear another doctor, you know, saying saying what I was saying. And or. And, and so then I, I realized that there's a community here. I tapped into that community that buoyed me up more. Um, and uh, as a result of my online advocacy, I was uh, offered the opportunity to be part of this or, and, or just as a result of my advocacy. Um, and so I really had to sit with it. I went inside. I, as, as, uh, as, as the Buddhists recommend, I sat with my fear, right? I made friends with the fear. Um, went into contemplation and, uh, I think I, that, that evening that I met you, I found out about the event maybe an hour and a half before it was supposed to start. And I was just like, I gotta go, I gotta go. And I'd already said, I want to meet Jay Bhattacharya one day. Like, Like to me, you were one of my heroes. You still are, still are. And, um, I went, it was a beautiful event. Um, 
and you guys spoke. Dr. Aaron Cariotti spoke. Um, and I remember taking, I remember uh, listening to you talk and I was thinking to myself, I wish everybody could hear this lecture. And, um, and you brought together the economic, social, ethical issues like really well together beautifully in that lecture. And after we were at dinner, um, I went up to you and I said, listen, what do you think about this? How do you fight it? And I really was so scared to join. But I remember you telling me that you only got death threats when you went on a certain news station. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, he's gotten death threats. That's crazy. That's crazy, right? Like what kind of world do we live in? And I thought to, I asked myself, okay, well, can I deal with death threats? Yes, I can deal with death threats. And that's when I, I mean, were, decided to go for um, <laughs> Pardon? I mean, I think uh, I, let's, let's let's talk about the group of people in that case, uh, in that that fought against AB twenty nine eighty eight successfully. So there, there was you. There is Dr. Aaron Cariotti, uh, who who we interviewed on the Illusion Consensus podcast. He was a professor at UC Irvine. A professor of psychiatry and medical ethics. And uh, because of his opposition, uh, basically his ethical opposition to the vaccine mandates that the UC system was putting in place, he was fired, even though he was a tenured professor. Um, you had Tracy Beth Hogg, who's a fantastic epidemiologist and uh, 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 from, from, with Dana, from uh, Denmark, but also uh, in the United, trained in the United States as well. Um, with a PhD in epidemiology and, a, and, a, and, a, and a, an MD in in, um, in, in physical medicine, um, and who's done just some fantastic work uh, throughout the pandemic on uh, on the epidemiology of COVID, uh, she opposed the. She lives in Sacramento. She she opposed AB twenty ninety eight. Then uh, Ram Darasetti, who is a physician at at Stanford, actually, uh, with, who has a PhD in data sciences and as a ER doc for for decades. Um, you know, you all came together uh, and you were represented by uh, uh, L- uh, Laura Powell, who's a, who's a, a attorney in Berkeley um, and, and then also New Civil Liberties Alliance. Uh, my, 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 my lawyer, actually, Janine Eunice in the, in the Missouri versus Biden case. Uh, to me, that was like just an A-team. Like you guys were, uh, were an incredible group. Um, uh, tell us about uh, what, 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 is, what was it like? to like you have to write it you have to first what, is, what does it mean to actually like sue the, the state of california over something like this what did you have to do what was what was the what did you put at stake sure um so i also want to add our other co-plaintiff is dr pete mazalowski who's um a general surgeon in um, northern california and he's kind of tell it like it is kind of you know that general surgeon personality like tell it like it is this is wrong we have to fight it sort of thing also just incredibly I, I haven't had the pleasure of meeting Pete but I would love to meet him oh he's fantastic I mean they all ahead. really are fantastic they're some of the smartest bravest people I know and just really really smart um so I didn't know anything about the legal process like I, it's not an area that I've been very uh you know experienced in lawyers the court system not my thing I thought and so that was also another, right? But I had learned in this process that challenge is always a good thing. Like you, you, you can always use the challenge to transmute difficulty, hardship into something beautiful and good. So I've actually now become more well-versed in the, in the, in the court lingo. But in the beginning, I didn't know anything. And so I just kind of looked to the lawyers to said, okay, well, write a declaration of what, since we were asking for preliminary injunction, we had to write a declaration um saying so what, like how what this is, law what, would what affect us and I, for you pardon 
Yeah. So how, how did how did the law affect you? Like, how, how, how were you thinking about that? What did you write in the declaration? So in the declaration, I wrote from the perspective of both a physician and as a patient, because um, AB 2098, the law says um, that uh, any doctor uh, can be found to have unprofessional conduct if they engage in disinformation or misinformation. So disinformation, their definition was knowing something is incorrect, but telling it to the patient anyway, right? Giving them false information that you know is false. I, I don't disagree with that. I think it's wrong and unethical for a doctor to give false information knowingly to a patient. But their other definition was also what misinformation. Do that? Pardon? Like, like, what, doctor, what doctor would ever do that? Like what doctor would say, okay, I believe A, but I'm going to tell the patient B. No doctor would do that. Yeah. Or if like, they do, they're really, I mean, it would be really, really horrible. And that's why we have a medical board to catch those bad apples um, who are doing yeah. something for I mean, money. There's malpractice laws to catch yeah. people like that. Right. Um, and so then they had the definition of misinformation in the bill. And their definition of misinformation was false information um, that's contradicted by um, contemporary consensus or something. Don't quote me, but cons- consensus contrary to the standard of care. Contradicted by contemporary consensus contrary to standard of care. Something to that effect. Maybe the word And so yeah. I, I read that. I was like, this is terrible. This is horrible, right? Because all along I have been thinking differently from consensus. And if I say something, they're going to come after me. Like, this is frightening. And I already knew so many of my friends had been chilling their speech, playing small, being afraid, didn't want to get fired. They'd already been telling me, oh, you know, I what's happened to free speech for doctors is just bizarre. It's, uh, you know, crazy. It's upside down. And so I already knew that from my own experience and from the experience of my fellow physicians, just seeing it, right? Seeing... And I, again, hearkening back to Iran, like seeing if the government says something, people start and and people are afraid they just keep their mouth shut. And say, why don't why don't we just, just very briefly let's assess the track record of this consensus? Like how how well did the, uh, the, the the CDC and the World Health Organization and the California Medical Association do in assessing uh, sort of the the nature of COVID, you know, so the age gradient in, in mortality risk, the infection fatality rate, uh, the immunity after COVID recovery, how well did it do in assessing whether the vaccine stops you from getting and spreading COVID? How well did it do in, in sort of the most important questions uh, about side effects of the vaccine for young men, um, you know, especially with myocarditis? It seemed to me like the consensus was wrong on important topic after important topic after important topic. Oh, Absolutely. And they didn't do their, uh, they weren't honestly communicating with the public. Um, So they were wrong. They were twisting information and presenting it in such a way that it was ultimately ended up being, I would say, dishonest just by even ignoring things that people knew about or was was emerging. And, And I think, I don't know, I'm just always trying to wonder why is this? Is it because the system in which they're operating is so slow, so they're always behind or What's going on? And I still, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this. Like, is it just the systemic issues or is it ego no, of the individuals? I, I think actually it's, it's very closely related to what we've been talking about through this whole podcast. If you have an information environment where uh, you're, uh, people who disagree with the center are not allowed to speak up, you know, you, you essentially create, the, the center creates a bubble for itself. It, and you mentioned sort of the othering of people. Um, you know, that that's exactly how a lot of people in the center, you know, people like Tony Fauci uh, thought about things like that, that if anyone contradicted him, then he must must be some sort of fringe figure, um, you know, because he represents science itself. 
Uh, it was it was a it was a, a by 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 shutting down speech and especially shutting down critical speech, it guaranteed that the that the center were going to get all kinds of things wrong, guaranteed it because the only way anyone gets anything right is by allowing criticism to come in. Yeah, and that's how it's happened. I mean, you and I have been to medical conferences, and you go to a medical conference. There's question and answer periods or you people come up to you afterward and they say, well, have you thought about it this way? Well, I actually disagree with you. I do my, you know, I do my therapy with in this order. Actually, no, I start steroids right away. I think that that's just you, you guys are being like scared when you don't start steroids at the same time as the onset of infection for this particular eye disease. Like, you know, you have that back and forth. You have that exchange of ideas and you learn things like if you're an open person, you know, you learn things and, 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 and it, it actually makes the science better. Um, I've also seen some people who are just so used to teaching, right? They don't take the time to be open. This, I've seen this also happen at some conferences. It's, but they just go from, you know, they're the ones who are thought of as the teachers and they're so, you know, quote unquote, the expert in their field. They're, they're almost deified. So they spend so much of their time teaching that they don't spend as much time like thinking about, oh, could I be doing this better or having people give them feedback that it could be better. So there's an element of that too. But in general, I have, and, and I love it, that, that there's discussion, there's debate, there's back and forth. There's people saying, well, no, you're doing this wrong or you're, uh, you're actually shouldn't be doing this at all. Like you want that, you want that debate. We didn't have that during COVID um, and you were othered. Um, I was afraid of being so, othered. And- and you and so that like the fight against AB 2098, the legal case then was actually made on a free speech basis, right? It wasn't. It was. It was. It was a an argument that the law violated the free speech of doctors. It was kind of an extraordinary claim, right? It's basically saying doctors aren't, aren't allowed to say to patients what they think. So in my declaration and the declaration of others, we went we talked about the First and Fourteenth Amendment rights violations. So the First Amendment right violation is that this law chills the speech of doctors. When you say that a doctor who speaks um, has to follow consensus um, and they have to follow standard of consensus that's not contradictive or if that the doctor will be found unprofessional if they don't follow consensus contrary to standard of care uh, or consistent with standard of care, that they... Um, are now no their speech is chilled so much because they don't even know what they can and cannot say. The law is so vague. And that's where the 14th Amendment right violation comes in. The law, any law, is supposed to be clear to a person of average intelligence. But um, we argue that this law is so mumble jumbled. You can even hear that I kind of like, I'm like, well, what was the wording of the law again? It's so unclear and vague that it, it, and the grammar of it was also really bad. And the judge even said when he granted us the preliminary injunction, this, this law doesn't, the grammar of it doesn't even make sense. So that was the 14th Amendment rights violation, to the, the right to due process, understanding that the law and making sure that it's clear that it would it was failed on. And that was the grounds actually upon which we won the preliminary injunction. The the judge said this law is vague. And it's so not what, clear. What did the, this is the judge... This is judge. Uh, this is the judge. Yeah, this, in is, this is the a federal judge, right? A federal federal court. So we fought this in the federal court system, um, and so we made the argument that it was uh, violating the fourteenth right, fourteenth uh, amendment, and then the first amendment. So the right of doctors to say what they want to say, and the saying that this AB two hundred nine eight chills the speech of doctors such that they don't actually say what they want to say. And the second thing was was where my um, declaration came in because I was one of the uh, I was the only plaintiff that also talked about it from the side of a patient. Because I um, have immune system issue, 
I have, I'm, I'm disabled and I've had, I, I, I constantly think about, you know, these things as a doctor, but then also I'm affected by it as a patient. I want to be able to go to a doctor and hear their true, what they truly believe as opposed to their chilled speech. So the first amendment also includes the right of the listener to hear the speech that the speaker was going to speak. And so if the government is interfering with the listener's right to speech, to hear that speech, it's also a First Amendment rights violation. So we were kind of were arguing both sides of the speaker and the listener in, when we were making the argument that it's a First Amendment rights violation. Yeah. Um, okay. So the, the, the judge rules in your favor. That says, like, look, this is this this is an unconstitutional law. I remember reading that. I was I was absolutely thrilled. You must have been over the moon thrilled. And I, I was, you know, I was just following along on, on this. Um, uh, and uh, the 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 uh, what was the reaction you got from your colleagues from from uh, did you did, you know I'm sure you talked to the press. What was what was your sense of of like how uh, how 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 doctors and and others that that weren't involved or civilians in this case thought about this? Well, we're really, really happy, obviously. I was really happy to hear. And, and the judge, honestly, he was like, he came to court. He was prepared. He'd read everything. He had thought about it deeply. Um, there was another lawsuit against this um, uh, law uh, where another judge, I, I read his ruling. And, I, and so it's a separate lawsuit from us against the same law. I read his ruling. He ruled in favor of the state. I read the ruling. I was like, is this, this, this gentleman isn't looking deeply into the, the deep issues. He's not a deep enough thinker with regard to this case. And, and, um, and to have kind of a vision of the downstream consequences. Um, they, by the way, uh, appealed. And so it went to a three-court appellate judge. And it looks like, um, I mean, those judges gave the state a hard time. So it looks like, you know, on mass, if you look at all the numbers of judges, most of them fall on the side of seeing that this is a violation. And so when we got our preliminary injunction, and for your listeners, a preliminary injunction, because I didn't know this stuff until I got involved in the legal system. Uh, preliminary injunction means that like, just at the very beginning, you know, as this case is starting, the state is um, can't come after us, basically. So the, the state can't use this law against the people who are the plaintiffs in the case. So we were granted the preliminary injunction. And so the judge said he was going to rule by the end of this year, by the end of, so we had the hearing in January, 2023. The judge said he would ju- rule by the end of 2023. Some things have happened since then with uh, the California government and the legislature and the governor, um, such that the judge may not, may decide he may not rule because they've actually repealed the law. Yeah, so that that's a, that's a really interesting part of the story, right? So Governor Newsom signs the law. It passes in, in fall of 2022. Governor Newsom signs the law, to my shock, uh, so that it goes into effect in January of 2023. Uh, two months later, there's this preliminary injunction essentially invalidating the law based on your case, just, just a few months It was that same month. That. It was the end of um, January. It was the end of January. End of January, right. So it was almost yeah. immediate. Uh, it, was so, it was so clearly an unconstitutional law. Um, and then uh, and, and then basically you, your silence from the government about this, about about from the California government about this, they're, you know, they're just, they've just been embarrassed in court. Uh, Governor Newsom has signed an unconstitutional law prohibiting speech. I mean, that's just, that's a, that's a, that's a huge embarrassment for any, any politician, especially an American politician, where free speech is a is, is such an important part of the American civic religion, it's a it's a fundamental civil right, and uh, the the ruling by the judge almost immediately after the 
court, uh, the, he the hearing is that this violates this free speech right, this, this, this free speech right of doctors and hurts patients too, really. Um, uh, and then uh, 2023 wears on, there's a new California uh, legislative session. And uh, what happened in that session? So in the meantime, our, you know, we've got the preliminary injunction. The other lawsuit the, the, for, from the, the, against this bill has been now heard in the three-judge appellate court. So things are happening. And then we, as a collective consciousness within America, are doing some processing regarding what happened during COVID. And people, are, people in power are now having to kind of have some accountability. I know you were involved in some of those discussions with uh, teachers' unions' heads and, and other people having these discussions. Um, about why, you know, they were having to defend why they did what they, and everybody seems to be punting it to other people. Well, I only did this because I had to follow the CDC, you know. And so we're kind of having some of those discussions, the hearings in Congress, et cetera. And I think there's a little bit more awareness that uh, the tyrannical behavior of Gavin Newsom and the Democrats in the state legislature uh, with regard to this law and with regard to other things, um, that doesn't make them look good and that it actually hopefully my part of me really wants to make them real help hopes that they realize that what they did was wrong but really i think ultimately number one they were concerned about optics and so in early september some uh language was added onto another bill um another health bill that said that basically said that this that reappealed the ab 2098 law and a few weeks so, after so the, that the legislature just a year before that it passed it quietly puts in language to repeal the bill this fall. Right. Exactly. Before they get any court rulings. Um, and, <laughs> <laughs> and did they make yeah, a big announcement all, about this? It's they, all, they, no, it's all on the hush hush. Process? It's all in the hush hush. And the author of the, the original author of the bill, Evan Lowe, who wrote AB 2098 basically said, well, you know, we don't really need it. So, or with this with this current bill, or with this new, you know, protect we have protections in place now with the new laws or whatever that we don't really need AB two hundred nine eight. So they just kind of backed away, and then they passed it a few weeks later, and then Gavin Newsom signed it just recently, and then after that he went and told one of my close friends at an event. He said uh, it never should have been passed in the first place, and it was my idea to repeal it. And I'm thinking to myself, dude, why did you sign it? Like, if it never should have passed in the first place, you're missing that important point of like, I never should have signed it in the first place. Like, <laughs> lack, complete lack of accountability for a huge misstep, a huge constitutional misstep. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was, it was. Um, well, I mean, I'm, I'm glad. I'd like, I have to say, in, in one sense. Uh, the American court system did quite well here, and even the American political process did quite well. Like you, you, you have public opinion turning against uh, this vast overstep. This was a violation of civil rights of doctors and, and harm, the harm to patients that come that flowed from it. Um, and the political system, even in a in a, in a uniparty state like California, where there really isn't a question about about losing losing power over this, they still felt the the California legislature. And the governor still felt compelled to, to backtrack on this. Um, so in that sense, it's a real it's a real notch in the you know cap for uh, for American democracy. Like it's still you know, as 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 badly as it's functioned over the last uh, last few years, it's still it's still like responsive to the people and and the basic civil rights courts can still uphold them. It's a real nice story. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it, it really made me see the importance of having, uh, you know, the balance of powers and having a judiciary branch and why it's so important. And it also made me realize, like, how the extent to which people will do things for optics. Like, I, I believe that Gavin Newsom did this and it was he says it's his idea. He did this because he has presidential aspirations. He wants more power. He wants and he doesn't want this stuff and what he did to, 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 to hinder that and, and come fight him. Uh, in the future. So he's trying to erase and clean up house uh, and make people less, less angry at him. Okay. So uh, we're all coming come in an hour. I want to make sure that folks can hear what your next projects are. I understand you're involved with another free speech lawsuit. Yeah. I didn't expect this, right? I just kind of like, you know, take steps forward and then see what unfolds and make sure that it, it's aligned with my principles and my values. So this uh, is a law that I'm fighting. It's a free speech violation for doctors in California. Another one. Um, it's called it's a AB 241. It was actually passed several years ago, but it's take, coming into effect now. That says that uh, anybody who organizes continuing medical education. So doctors have to take continuing medical education um, 50 hours every two years in the state of California in order to maintain their license. Um, any doctor who, or any organizer of medical education or any doctor who teaches medical education, continuing medical education to other doctors has to speak about a certain topic that the gov government wants them to talk about and has to talk about it at the rate the government wants them to talk about it. In this case, it's about implicit bias, um, which is like our subconscious bias. But they want us to talk about it at every single lecture that we give and um, and uh, and talk about it. And then they want you to talk about strategies and, to, and kind of tie it to uh, what the government wants you to tie it to. And for me, I actually, I believe in the power of the unconscious mind to really affect us negatively and positively. I believe in that there's an implicit bias that happens and it has a role in affecting how we treat each other and how patient, doctors uh, treat patients. At the same time, coming at it from like a free speech perspective, it's not healthy to have laws on the books where the government tells you what you have to say and how often you have to say it and, in the, and, and laying you the framework in which you have to talk about it in a certain way. Like you have to teach these strategies. And it's not even evidence-based, the law. Like there's no real good evidence that us teaching any certain strategies about implicit bias does anything to reduce bias in doctors. So it's poorly, it's poorly, it has poor evidence base behind it. Um, it's mandating speech, compelling speech. And uh, I had to fight it just based on principle alone. Um, that being said, I, I, I teach mindfulness. I believe in the power of the unconscious, but we have to kind of, I wouldn't want anything that I believe in. I wouldn't want to compel any other doctor to have to teach that. Um, yeah. So, I mean, the, the, the principle is uh, free speech, even, even for speech that you agree with, you don't want to force other doctors who maybe disagree with it, or maybe it's irrelevant to like, maybe, you know, you're just talking about some randomized trial in oncology. Why do you have to talk about this? Exactly. Uh, why take time? Right? Um, I mean, I think that that's, I mean, that's admirable. You're, you're going uh, for this principle of free speech, even for speech that you think is important. Well, it's, um, it's kind of but, com linked to kind of what you've done, right? Like you advocated for something to help reduce disparities, outcome disparities, or just or to improve outcomes in people as a result of COVID interventions, right? You wanted to help minimize 
uh, negative outcomes in the populace overall. Uh, and so you said, hey, lockdowns may not be such a good idea. It's not a good idea because it's going to have all these horrible downstream consequences um, on the psyche and the economic health and the education of, of the populace. It's the same thing here. Like, I really believe in like, and I'm passionate about looking at disparities and minimizing disparities. And and I do other work with looking at highly sensitive people and their um, their disparities outcomes uh, or the out- disparities in their outcomes. Um, but I want anything that's looking at, and the goal of this law is to like reduce disparities. I want it to be based on sound reasoning and sound evidence, not just, well, we're going to teach you about implicit bias and we don't actually have evidence that it's going to do anything to reduce bias, but we're going to do it anyway. Cause, because it sounds like a good idea. Yeah. Okay. So, and then now the other, you have another project, if I understand, uh, a new documentary. So you've been, you obviously keeping yourself busy, which is not surprising. Uh, tell, tell, tell us about that, that new documentary. Um, so I, uh, as a result of this one day I was just meditating and the idea came to me, we have to make this film because I was meeting these amazing people in the AB 2098 lawsuit. Our lawyers are fantastic. Um, my co-plaintiffs are just amazing. I've met you and I was now, you know, in a place where I was putting the pieces together and I was, uh, have the skill set we can, and, and to, to talk about these ideas and, and the lawsuit and then link it to these larger ideas that you, we and I have talked about in this podcast. Um, and, uh, so the idea is that we're going to make a documentary about the AB 2098 lawsuit and the people involved and the personalities involved in their backgrounds, but then link it to these larger issues of free speech and um, chilling of free speech and what that means in this post-COVID world, um, and then link it to the larger uh, issues of the federal government and even global organizations and the increasing um, biomedical surveillance industrial complex and the, how that framework is, has been in place even before COVID and, and, and kind of link this all together and explore, explore this in, in a documentary. Uh, and I uh, well, hope um, that we'll be working on that. Love to have you in it. Uh, it should be really fun. I'm looking forward to uh, looking forward to seeing what what you uh, what you what you've uh, come up with. Um, okay, so I've kept you for an hour, uh, but thank you so much for talking to me. This is Dr. Uh, 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 Azade Kabidi. This is uh, Katibi. Katibi. I get you know what people I, mix I, those up Kabidi? all the time. I'm not even. It's no worries. You know, my uh, my last name is uh, my my cousins think I don't know how to pronounce my own last name. So you know, anyways, uh, and I'm the correct Professor pronunciation of your last name. What do your cousins say is the correct pronunciation of your last name? I I can't I can't actually reproduce it. It's really it's a it's a it's a shock shocking thing. Oh, my I, when I speak Bengali, my my cousins are, all laugh at my uh, American accent that I have. So it's just uh, it's a sad thing. Um, <laughs> anyways. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Katibi, for coming on the show. This is uh, Jay Bhattacharya for the Illusion of Consensus podcast. Until next time, thank you so much. Thank you. Have a beautiful day, everyone.